You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to tell the story of the Georgia post-punk band Pylon. But first, we've got some new music to review. That is a track called Shot in the Dark from the new, yes, new ACDC album. I know it may be hard (laughs) to tell sometimes. This is the latest one. Power Up is its name. What's fascinating about Power Up is that we never expected another ACDC album. They have had a particularly uh, bad stretch here in the 2010s. Uh, The founding guitarist Malcolm Young, I mean, one of my heroes in rock and roll, he retired in 2014 after being diagnosed with uh, dementia and then died a few years later. Uh, I mean, key songwriter, uh, really the spine of that band sound for so many years. Uh, Um, Shortlisted for one of the great rhythm guitarists of all time. Absolutely. So the loss of Malcolm was a huge blow. Uh, Legal troubles for drummer Phil Rudd. There was a question whether he would even be able to be a free man, let alone uh, playing on an ACDC album. Brian Johnson having to quit touring because of uh, major hearing loss. Uh, Bassist Cliff Williams left the group in 2016 after the last tour. So that left Angus Young to sort of assemble what was left of ACDC, if anything. He started going through their archives and seeing, you know, what was left in the bank. And then when uh, the band all re-congregated at Malcolm's funeral, that's when the ideas started percolating. Well, maybe let's give this one more shot. And they basically brought the band back together again, what was left of the band. Kind of a sweet note here in that the nephew of Malcolm Young took over his uncle's spot as the rhythm guitarist in the band. He, would, he did that during the tour uh, for the last album, and he continues in of, that of role Wolfie now. Wolfie Van Halen. So now we have a new ACDC record. Lo and behold, did not expect to see this at all. Uh, Brendan O'Brien back as the producer. He's been the producer for the last few records. Uh, Let's play a track from it and then review it. Through the Mists of Time by ACDC on Sound (laughs) of Pain. Time by ACDC from studio album number 17, Power Up. I made a joke about Wolfie Van Halen, but I, I think uh, the young nephew is already in his mid-60s. Right? <laughs> it warms the cockles of my heart to see you drop all pretense of uh, critical uh, rigor, just becoming that 13-year-old uh, Afro-wearing Greg Cott. Uh, <laughs> long before I met you, we've only been doing this 30 years, but man, you've got a blind spot with ACDC. Now, <laughs> it, it is not 
the repeating. Uh, I wouldn't say that. Repeating a formula, okay? Because there are great moments on every Ramones album up to the end. Some way more than others, but, you know, it was one formula for all of those years, and it's a fine formula, and so is ACDC's, you know, only slightly slowed down. Uh, But the slowing is telling now as these gents enter their 70s. The groove is lacking. I believe that Malcolm really is missed on rhythm guitar. Get out of my way. I ain't stopping for nobody. Angus sounds like it's only half the sound on lead guitar. You know, Brian Johnson actually sounds really good, but as always, you got to question the lyrics here, Greg. Why should we start questioning their lyrics now? Well, they have never been politically correct. In interviews, they've been saying they don't know what the word woke means, and I don't expect them to change their spots, but really, at least update your quote-unquote playful misogyny and sexism for 2020. When he's talking about painted ladies, what the heck are you talking about, man? Come on, 17 albums. Is this even in the top 14 that you would play when you need a little ACDC? No, it's not. (laughs) And the reason I played Through the Mist of Time, because... uh, as we've been talking, uh, they tend to repeat themselves. Yeah. Uh, that is a track that at least shows an inkling of acknowledgement that uh, things have changed in their lives, and they, they do sort of nod in that direction. Uh, Angus has sort of talked about this as, you know, sort of being the sequel of sorts to their tribute album of sorts to Bon Scott, right. well, back the great in, singer back in 1980. In black, you know, back but in black, there's no comparison. Albums, there's though. no comparison to those albums. Yeah. and. The loss of Malcolm is huge. I don't think anybody can overestimate how important he was to this band. It is a slog. The lyrics have always been dire. I I think Bon Scott had that sense of humor about the fact that he was, you know, your classic rock and roll uh, dope in the in the 70s, and he was having he was he was having fun with that whole thing, and there was. A, a joyousness to that sound in the 70s that couldn't be duplicated by any any album, including Back in Black. I mean, Back in Black is celebrated as a classic, but I'll, I'll stack up Highway to Hell against that album. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen Jesus play with flames in a lake of fire that I was standing in. Met the devil in Seattle Spent nine months inside the lion's den I met Booty Another time he showed me a glowing light within But I swear God is there every time I stare to the eyes of my best friend That's a track from the latest Sturgill Simpson record called Cut and Grass Volume 1, The Butcher Shop Sessions. Uh, the track's called Turtles All the Way Down. You may recognize that, you Sturgill Simpson fans out there. I know there's a bunch of you. Uh, That is a track uh, that he recorded initially on one of his uh, earlier uh, studio albums. He's coming back to reinterpret that in a far different setting, uh, bluegrass setting to be exact. Uh, Sturgill, the Kentucky-born country artist, worked in a rail yard uh, through most of his 20s and didn't really start releasing music until he was well into his 30s. Now on his fifth studio album, uh, a lot of people regard him as the North Star of country music mm-hmm. in recent years. Sort of an outlaw country vibe, but also very much steeped in tradition, but not afraid to mess with that tradition as he proved 
last year with Sound and Fury, a raging rock album accompanied by a Japanese anime film. It was just like, uh, okay, what exactly is this guy doing? He's a subversive artist in, in many, many ways. Now he's got a hardcore bluegrass record that he is presenting us. Uh, Let's play a track from it before we review it. Here's Breaker's Roar from the new album Cut and Grass Volume 1, The Butcher Shop Sessions on Sound Opinions. Oh, how Breaker's Roar He pulled me farther from shore I'm served to love so kind To keep me from losing my mind So It's so easy drown in our dreams Oh, and everything's not what it seems This life is but a dream Shatter illusions, hold your spirit down Open up your heart and you find love all around That is Breaker's Roar from the new Butcher Shop Sessions by Sturgill Simpson, uh, an alternate take on uh, Breaker's Roar. So, Greg, you know, Sound and Fury was one of my favorite albums of 2019, an incredible blast of exactly that furious sound. I've been on a Sturgill Simpson uh, kick ever since. I went back to the earlier records. I was not expecting this. I mean, my knowledge of bluegrass begins and ends with uh, the great Bill Monroe, right? All right? I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, right? But now I think I'm going to be doing a, a serious uh, bluegrass deep dive uh, thanks to Sturgill, which I gather was his intention you know uh as someone who grew up in in jersey city across the river from uh, manhattan and you know hoboken and i get uncomfortable if there's not concrete underfoot you know what i mean <laughs> i i imagine there are the pleasures of uh, rolling around in the kentucky bluegrass but i never experienced it okay but the thing i'm realizing a reason i mentioned new york is uh bluegrass at its best has a ramones like intensity mm-hmm. you know that this is like the punk rock of country and to hear these sturgill songs as bluegrass is just phenomenal i gather these are world-class bluegrass players, uh, many of them that he recruited for this record. And I am certainly no expert in this genre. I think you know more than I do, but I can't imagine bluegrass gets any better than this. Well, he he has uh, picked an all-star band to work with him. I mean, Stuart Duncan on fiddle is one of the world's greats. Sierra Hall on mandolin, awesome. In fact, she's in many ways a star on this record. Yeah. But You know, the point about bluegrass being a virtuoso's field under the country music umbrella, sometimes people mistake virtuosity for like, oh, really elaborate solos. You know, there's really not a lot of soloing flash going on. It's more about speed and precision. Yeah. And you get that velocity behind the music and also some tenderness and beauty. But at the same time, it's more about the weave, creating this sort of dense matrix of stringed instruments behind these songs. And I love these songs in their original versions. I mean, he just takes them way out. And I loved how he was transforming some of these really beautiful songs. Breaker's War, for example, it's a gentle orchestrated ballad from A Sailor's Guide to Earth from his great 2016 record. The big breakthrough. And now it's just coming across as this kind of very stripped down plea, the fate of It's All a Dream, 
just kills me every time I hear it, the way he sings that in the context of, of this band. And he's wrestling with this whole idea of, you know, being pulled away from your family by all these other responsibilities and, and sort of coming to terms with that. Uh, similarly for Turtles All the Way Down, that probably his signature song in many ways. And mm-hmm. if you listen to the original arrangement on that, it's very psychedelic. And he's talking about, you know, drug use and all these other things, as well as Buddhist philosophy and yeah, yeah. all these kind of really <laughs> deep subjects that aren't typical subject matter for a country song. Marijuana, but here in this sort of stripped down setting, again, you're, it's like you're hearing these songs anew. And I think what he's essentially done is created sort of a Sturgill Simpson career retrospective. Yeah. That marijuana and LSE, psilocybin and DMT, they all change the way I see. Love's the only thing that ever saved my life. And of course, doing it in an incredibly unconventional way. And this is exactly what we're expecting from Sturgill Simpson. Everybody said, oh, it's a conservative record. Well, no, not really. No. Because he's reinterpreting songs that were not conservative in any way when they first well, started. Well, and look at the cover art of him riding a, a riding lawnmower. <laughs> he is making his own path through the groundwork of country music. I think the fascinating idea of revisiting one's own catalog through a completely different perspective, or is it, right? Yeah. You know, th- this is one way I could have gone. These were my roots. You, know, you consider what he's done and what he's built his reputation on. Uh, it is radical mm-hmm. to go back. It's a very postmodern idea. It is, indeed. We've got uh, ACDC doing exactly what we expected them to do, and Sergio Simpson once again doing <laughs> the unexpected. Uh, let us know what you think about uh, both of these records. Uh, let us know on Facebook or Twitter or email a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to have a review of new music from Biba Doobie and Low Cut Connie after the break, plus the story of Pylon. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we have two more new albums to review. That is a little bit of a track called Diet Red by Biba Doobie from her new album, Fake It Flowers. Greg, Biba Doobie I first heard of uh, when you played her as a buried treasure, a track from one of four EPs that she put out. A young woman who was born in the Philippines uh, moved as a very young child, age three, I believe, to uh, Camden in London, uh, grew up there, was introduced to music while studying at an all-girl Catholic school, watching the film Juno and falling in love with the sounds of Kimya Dawson. She broke through in a big way with a track called Coffee that uh, was one of those, it's an overused phrase, but a genuine viral sensation. Millions of hits on TikTok. Everybody waiting for a first full album 
What is Biba Doobie going to give us? I've been waiting all week for this, Greg. i got to give you that famous joke. You ever see the uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut quote where to be is to do, Socrates. To do is to be, Sartre. Doobie-doo, doobie-doo, <laughs> Sinatra. I just love saying, I love saying B's name, Biba Doobie. Let's play a, a track from the album. We'll come back and give our reviews. This is a song called Care. It's uh, the lead-off track on Fake It Flowers by Biba Doobie. Here from Biba Doobie, her debut album after a series of EPs. The album is called Fake It Flowers. Care could have been lifted off a playlist in 1994. You know, <laughs> yeah. one of those alt rock stations. Yeah. Veruca Salt meets Pavement, you know, a little bit of, you know, Nirvana, let's say. Uh, you know, that song is almost a perfect distillation of what she's been doing lately in collaboration with her co producer. Pete Robertson, who was in a pretty good British band named The Vaccines, yeah. who played in a similar style. I'm really impressed with the range he's showing on a track like Sorry, where, where it's this combo of orchestrated strings, and then it goes into this crunchy guitar part, and it sort of toggles back and forth. You know, she starts out in that, in that soft voice and then, and, and then really uh, builds in range uh, once we get to the refrain. Uh, you know, a track like Horn Saracen, sort of a love song uh, to her boyfriend, uh, which she's kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, thought of as, a, as her Disney soundtrack song. So yeah. there, there's all these different moves that she's doing on this record. It's almost like she's trying on a different outfit with each song, seeing what fits best. And, you know, the thing I like about her, she's got a sense of humor uh, about the whole thing. I mean, even the name, Biba Doobie, is just like, you know, you, you kind of have a chuckle. Like, she's, she's almost having fun with this idea. At the same time, while addressing some, some really serious subjects in these songs, uh, childhood memories that she can't shake and continue to haunt her in a way. So uh, she's an artist who's still growing into her sound. She's only 20 years old, and I'm looking forward to uh, what she gives us next. I wish, Greg, uh, she was a better self-editor, because uh, when she is letting the guitar rip, it is ferocious, it's wonderful. When she is uh, railing against the sort of racism she had to deal with uh, as a young Filipino woman growing up in, in the UK, or, you know, a, a timeless uh, feminist statement like the one in Diet Red, which we bumped in with, uh, blank me only when I'm keen, not according to your beer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, um, you know, I think that uh, Biba Doobie is not always consistent in tone. 
there are also oh uh, yeah she's uh, all over the place she's all over the place and 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 not all of those places are good to visit um that 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 section uh in the last third of the album with horan saracen and how was your day where it's real sleepy uh emo-y uh sitting in my bedroom crying in my tea kind of stuff i I mean it lost me completely Uh, uh not a fan of that uh, I think one of the, the lasting legacies of Kimya Dawson uh, is that horrible infantile vocalization style. I, I don't like it when she does it. I know she's an inspiration. Yeah, I wish there was more humor. You know, that 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 single, I Want to Be Stephen Malcolmus, <laughs> which got endorsed by none other by Stephen Malcolmus. I think that's what you're missing. I don't think she's playing into that Kimya Dawson trope at all. I, I, I actually think she's using it as raw material, but there is a tongue-in-cheek aspect to a lot of this, which I think uh, makes it a a very knowing take on that sound and then taking it somewhere different and personalizing it and talking about her life through the filter of these influences. I think she needed a producer, and that's a harsh... uh, Well, she has one, but you don't like what he's doing. I don't like what what he's doing. Well, I I think they need to get out of the bedroom artist or wherever they recorded. Maybe it was actually a warehouse. I don't know. They need to broaden the perspective. We can shake it up. Take a ride downtown. We could break it down. Take a little ride downtown. That is a little bit of a song called Take a Little Ride Downtown by Low Cut Connie. Greg, uh, I first discovered this band and played them as a buried treasure about six or seven years ago on the show. Uh, after that, we began following their career. We both became big fans, and they were on episode 519 in November 2015. Adam Weiner, uh, a Jersey guy who put the group together in Philadelphia, an incredible storyteller, feels like you'd want to spend 10 hours with him in a bar, shut the place down, and stay after last call. Uh, great, great storyteller devoted to the kind of sleazy, dirty, but rootsy rock and roll. Uh, basically, the model always was Jerry Lee Lewis live at the Star Club in Hamburg, right? Mm-hmm. This is rock and roll as led by a piano. Uh, unusual. And uh, Adam Weiner uh, loves his upright piano, Chandra, which you can you can see the miles on her. Uh, mm-hmm. He carries it to every gig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who carries an upright piano around, right? What is Adam Weiner giving us as Low Cut Connie on Private Lives, a sprawling double album. There's some surprises here, and we'll get into them after we play a track. This is called Look What They Did by Low Cut Connie from Private Lives. They built casinos in 1981 They said the whole frickin' city's gonna grow Donald Trump made half a billion, what have we got to show? Look at what they did to the people Look at what they did to the town Look how they built up the dream and now they're tearing it down that we could but when you look at what it did to the 
doesn't sit with me good. That is Look What They Did from Low Cut Connie. The new album is called Private Lives. Uh, there's a song uh, about uh, what happened to Atlantic City when they yeah. built a bunch of casinos there. It's a stark protest song uh, in, in an album filled with stories about hard luck. He's writing for and about the underdogs, and as he has much of his career, I would say. But his, you know, what I see this is, is really a collection of short stories that happen to be rock and roll songs. And he's become much more adept, not only as a lyricist in terms of telling these stories, the detail, the level of imagery, but also as a singer, uh, kind of very adaptable voice in terms of his ability to handle some of these stark after hours kind of songs, you know, these sad ones, these melancholy tracks, as well as jump into something like, you know, the punky Tea Time. You know, that walloping, nobody else will believe you. You've got to boogie for yourself because nobody else will believe Nobody else will believe but I do. He's very much a traditionalist, but I think he's, t- he's showing the range you can still present in those basic instruments, those basic tools that the first rock and roller started out with. And a lot of it comes down to the songwriting. And he's got, I think from a, a song-to-song basis, this is the most consistent uh, collection that he has uh, given us so far. And, you know, that's a pretty high bar he set for himself in the past. But I think this record is the strongest yet that he's, uh, that he's put together. I really enjoy it, Greg. And I think if you've been following the group's career, there are a couple of, uh, of, of new influences on that familiar sound. I mean, it is a familiar sound. It is rooted in history. He is doing, I think, to that sort of Jerry Lee Lewis 50s rock and roll what uh, Jack White did to the electric blues with White Stripes, making them relevant for this moment, injecting fresh life into sounds we thought were played. That's one thing. I think he's bringing more gospel into this record. Uh, There are a number of of guest vocalists doing backing vocals that are just beautiful. And there have always been slower songs um, but uh, there's more on this album, just because there's more of everything. It's a sprawling double album. And I'll confess, the first t- two times I listened to Private Lives, I, I was wondering, is this a bit too much slow? And then I really, it, it was that track we just played, um, Look What They Did, that, that, that hooked me. Um, you know, being a Jerseyite myself, like Adam Weiner, uh, you know, when he is looking at this savior who swooped into Atlantic City, which had been, you know, great in the 20s, 30s, 40s, even when, when I was a kid, and then fallen on very hard times like many American cities. And someone comes in and says, I'm going to save this place, and injects allegedly uh, billions of dollars, but turns out to be none of his own, uh, builds it up, and then the crash that comes is 10 times harder than the city had ever experienced. And of course, that person was Donald Trump. And, you know, the line that, that kills me in Look What They Did, tough blank for the little guy living like a chump with his back to the wall. Um, there is uh, an empathy, an understanding of the, uh, you know, what, what, what people were derided for calling the deplorables. And he is like Springsteen. Ah, a Springsteen Mm. comparison for you, my friend. Hmm. I think trying to uh, get inside the head of people 
who've had it hard and have anger and resentment uh, built up. And he is doing it, I think, much more effectively and much more poetically. I think Adam Weiner can, can talk more realistically to people. Uh, maybe some of these people don't deserve the empathy, but I don't know. If we take a humanist perspective, everybody deserves a helping hand. And he's offering it along with a shot and a beer. I love that. Do you have any thoughts on the albums we reviewed today? Let us know on Facebook or Twitter, or send us a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org. When we come back, we're going to talk to two of the members of the 80s rock band Pylon, hugely influential. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My co-host is Greg Cott. And Greg, I don't know about you, but Georgia's certainly been on my mind in recent (laughs) weeks. They've been all over the news, the fine state of Georgia, with the election results and the runoff elections that are upcoming. Jason Isbell has said he's making a tribute album uh, of all Georgia artists. I've got quite a few favorites. I'm sure you do. Absolutely, Jim. From uh, Little Richard and R.E.M. to Outkast, I mean, Georgia's musical legacy is pretty stacked. And uh, today we're going to remember one of the greats of the post-punk era, Pylon. Uh, The group from Athens were peers to R.E.M. early on and were championed by the B-52s, who even had them as their opener when they played Central Park in New York in 1980. And to this day, members of R.E.M. will tell you that Pylon was the best live band they ever saw. Unfortunately, most of the music they created in that era from the late 70s to the early 80s was kind of hard to find until this year when they released a box set. We're excited now to talk with Pylon vocalist Vanessa Briscoe-Hay and bassist Michael Lahowski. Welcome to the show, Vanessa and Michael. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Let us uh, set up the story. In the beginning, Pylon comes together with this incredible guitarist, Randy Bewley, and you, Michael, uh, you're on bass, you're University of Georgia art school students. Uh, Eventually, uh, we we had uh, a fantastic drummer, yes, and you on uh, vocals, Vanessa, and Pylon is complete. A lot of people don't know the story. So take us through. I mean, you know, the original 40-watt club is a loft room, and there's just just noise coming from it, and it it involves you four. Randy and I met, yeah, at art school. He wanted to get into the photography program, and they wouldn't let him in, but that's where I was. And, you know, he asked me, um, will you give me critiques? And we'd lay out his Polaroids in the kitchen table, and I would give him a critique. And we developed this culture that we didn't really need to stay within the boundaries of what we were studying or what we were gonna explore. And we had some, um, you know, confidence that we could maybe do that with music. I thought it was like way too late. He he wanted us to start a band. And I was like, are you kidding me? That's already been done like so many times. Yeah, You know, yeah. he had to talk me into it. I was like, well, I don't know what I would play. And he goes, well, you know, listen to your records and try to tease out, like, what, what instrument is it that, you know, you think you would understand or whatever. So I kind of picked out the bass guitar because it seemed like it might be the easiest thing. He was going to play drums, but we couldn't get very far with just drums and bass. So he started playing guitar, thank goodness. And yeah, then when we started rehearsing in, in my art studio instead of at our apartment, Curtis, who lived upstairs in the loft, 
he had some drumming experience, not much, but, you know, uh, enough to keep us a little bit more structured once he finally got on the scene. I, I love the way Curtis Crow, the drummer, has always told this story where he just heard this never-ending series of hooks repeated again and again and again and again and again. And then when he finally knocked on the door and said, do, do you need a drummer? You know, he like had already memorized everything you had because he, he couldn't get away from it. Yeah, yeah. It was... Um wonderful to have somebody come knocking on the door and offer to bring a third point of reference right you know like something has to have a beginning and maybe even an end not to mention the middle and the bridge and the part b Uh, (laughs) we're not even at the vocal stage yet no we are a long ways away from vocals but hey you know even after we got curtis and then um asked vanessa to come and try out for the band and we loved the energy she brought to it even though we couldn't necessarily hear her or our equipment wasn't all that good, whatever PA we had her singing through, but we could tell she was she was doing something different, something original. And um, Pylon still was learning what they were doing like, all the way through for quite a while. That's how we came together, four art students that really didn't know what they were doing and um, eventually got good at it. The timeline says, Vanessa, that you were auditioning for the band in, in February, and then the first show was like three weeks later in March. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. <laughs> and you had zero experience up to that point being in a, in a band or being a singer, right? And now you're on stage playing with this band. I mean, what was that experience like? Well, I mean, it was my friends, and uh, most of the people who came and saw us were our friends, too. There was already a scene in Athens created by the B-52s. They had left town and there was uh, kind of a vacuum there. So it wasn't like I was in front of a thousand people. It was maybe, what do you say, Michael, maybe 50, 60 of our friends. I was kind of shy, but uh, you know, it's all right. It was a little dark or whatever. It's not like we uh, were all that great either. I mean, we had people, you know, coming up and giving us advice like, uh, you know, you and Randy need to look like you're having more fun or, you know, you guys need to move. You're standing there like statues. And, you know, we were just trying to remember the songs and try to play them correctly. But maybe it was our third or fourth or fifth show, the house show, you know, everything just all of a sudden clicked. The night was right, the, the weather, the, the crowd, the location, and everything just started to gel. And, and finally, we were like, oh, people are into it now. And so that show, like, that was pretty much it until we played in um, Philly, Boston, and uh, New York. Yeah, we didn't hone our craft for too long before we came up and tried it out in New York City and such. There was this fantastic pipeline up and down the East Coast uh, between Athens, Georgia, and those cities you're talking about, Philadelphia and New York City at the center of it, of course. That path had been trod by REM. You guys are contemporaries, and the B-52s, first, uh, Love Tractor soon, you know, but then Pylon is following, you know, I remember being really young, you know, but people were saying, oh, you got to hear this new band from Athens, and we're like, 
which one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because there was this great community. And of course, then when bands from Hoboken or Boston came down to Athens, you know, you guys put them up on your floor. It was interesting, though, because everybody's first encounter with you was that, or at least the people who were up in that era, was that single, Cool. And you didn't sound like you were shy or at all. It sounded like a very assertive person and also just kind of gripping in the way that music was being presented. There was an abrasiveness to it, but it also was really melodic and hooky. Michael, you were saying it took a while. By the fifth gig, you said you thought you had something. Was that something evident on that song? Well, yeah, in that it was just so fresh, you know, because like um, there was a fairly long lead time to uh, by the time we were given the opportunity to record a single. And we had these two songs, Feast on My Heart and uh, The Human Body. And we're like, okay, these are two gems, you know. These are the two songs that we've just, you know, we've, we've had them for a really long time. We've played them and mastered them. I mean, these are the... This should be our single. So we had two days um, scheduled to record our first single with DB Records in in Atlanta area. And we spent all the first day recording the, the tracks for uh, those two songs, and we were going to mix them the next day. And we all went home to our various uh, family homes and such uh, and around the Atlanta area with a, a rough mix cassette. We were all listening to it at home, I'm sure. And I think I remember calling Randy and just saying, the sense of stilted and stayed. I mean, those two songs, we just kind of did them just exactly the same way every time. And I was like, why don't we ask Danny if he would let us try, like, cool. We hashed it out. We went in the next day, and as Curtis has uh, recounted, like, like, Dub wasn't even really, like, a complete song at that point. I mean, it definitely didn't have an ending or a duration figured out. Anyway, luckily Danny was into it. He let us try these other two songs, and so we had one day to record two more songs and to decide and then to mix. And so I think Cool and Dub, especially as they were captured on that record, they shared just this freshness and a willingness to just kind of go for it, you know, instead of staying on the real safe lane. And then like idiots later on when we put out our first album, we were like, no, Cool and Dub, those are, yeah, I mean, those did really well. <laughs> those have already been released. I mean, we're not also going to put those on the record, you know? You Stuff know, like R.E.M. That. had put Radio Free Europe. I mean, the, the badge of Cool was to own the Hibtone single, but it is on Murmur, you know? <laughs> yeah. What are you thinking, you anti-capitalist art <laughs> students? <laughs> yeah. That was an amazing statement. And the one thing that, I, you know, we loved was that it was danceable. <laughs> you know, you didn't always hear that, like coming out of punk and then hardcore was coming in. I mean, you could certainly pogo to it, but you couldn't really dance to it. And this music was really danceable. And I assume some B-52s, a little bit of that maybe filtering in there, but you guys are pretty early in that game. There weren't a lot of bands doing, you know, that post-punk thing hadn't quite gotten the dance groove going yet, and you guys had it. 
So where did that come from, Vanessa? Some of that, of course, is the influence of the B-52s and that we weren't like them, but uh, people kind of expected to dance at a show. And then we also were lucky enough uh, to have uh, Curtis as the drummer, and he was able to really nail down that four and the floor B. Uh, and that combined, you know, with that snaky bass line that uh, Michael would play, I, I think it was just without really a lot of thought being put into it. It was dance music. People really got into it, but it wasn't like disco. But you look at that era, there were a lot of things colliding at the same time. Disco was just coming to an end. There was funk. Uh, there was the beginnings of uh, hip hop, you know, particularly in New York City, you would see the kids with the boom boxes in the park spinning on cardboard. It's just maybe something that was in the air of that particular era. It wasn't contrived, is what I'm trying to say. You know, Vanessa, at that point in New York, uh, the bands that were doing sort of angular funk music, right? James Chance or, or Bush Tetras and stuff like that. It, it was in the air. You're absolutely right. Um, and, of course, there was Gang of Four across the ocean, right? But you guys were having fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know as you were sort of looking, uh, you know, a little shy, but a little assertive on stage, Pylon was fun. Is that a Southern thing? Because, you know, when we read about that that Athens scene that gave us B-52s and R.E.M. and Love Tractor, it's like you danced at house parties. Yes. Right? And, now, and, and even at the early R.E.M. shows at Maxwell's, people danced. Which I, yeah. I was like, wow, you know, you didn't dance at CBGB, mm-hmm. you know, but you danced to, to the music that was coming from Athens and nobody gave a better dance party than Pylon. I think we were the, the types that like we we wanted to appear really serious, but we knew a lot of what we were doing was uh, fun. Now, that's still a little different than being zany like the B-52s. You know, we weren't right. zany. We were just kind of like trying to lock it down. But our lyrics and our... Uh, self-importance, I think, were playful enough that we maybe looked kind of like serious, but I think that at, at the heart of it, it came through that we knew it was all just for fun. We were all trying to have a good time. We were trying to be original, but we weren't trying to claim to any great feats of uh, <clears throat> musicianship or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We ended up realizing or, or calling ourselves at some point that we were tourists in the rock and roll industry <laughs> because we... We were always on the road and we really got into the tourist thing of like stopping and buying postcards and taking a lot of uh, pictures of us with our cameras hanging around our necks and stuff like that. And so we we knew we were a little bit nerdy and we decided that we were just tourists in the rock and roll world. Is that your way of saying that that's that's why you got out after two albums? Because I think everybody was like, between you and Mission of Burma, those were like the two bands that like, they seem to be peaking and yet here they go, they're done. You know, it was like a shock. Yeah, kind of. What happened? 
So you released Chomp in 1983, and soon after, see you later. Yeah, I guess we were waiting around for some uh, the next big thing to happen and um, getting suggestions from people all the time about what we needed to do next. And, you know, just everywhere, the press would probably ask the question like, well, they're really good, but how come they're not on a real label by now? And that kind of thing that kind of and got into our heads a little bit. Mm. Which is not how it started at all. No, I don't think, you know, the B-52s like had major success, got signed and left town. And then I think Pylon contributed to this somewhat different model, which is to um, stay in Athens. I was very proud of REM that they stayed in Athens and made big impact, therefore, on how the Athens scene grew from that point forward. Well, and it just made sense. I mean, even though New York in, in 83 was a cheaper rent than now, it's like Athens was dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. You rent a whole church like R.E.M. did, right? And wh- why are you paying rent if you're in the van for three months? Right. Right. It, it was very inexpensive for artists. And uh, we were making enough money playing in New York. We could survive on that when we got back home. I had a three-speed bicycle. My rent and electricity and water all came to around $150 a month. Mm. So I was able to survive pretty well, you know. Over the years, there have been a couple of reunions, and now you've got the box set. I don't know if there's any plans to yet again do some shows, although who knows when we'll be able to play shows again, but I don't know how you guys, where you're at in terms of that. Do you feel like this is sort of a capstone to what you've accomplished, or do you feel like this is a new beginning? How do you look at this? Well, I personally look at it as uh, it's not like a legacy or a capstone to our career, so to speak. I think that it's a beautiful way to repackage and represent our early work together because it shows what we did between, let's say, 78 or 79 and 1983. And, you know, all the fun we had and the art and the photography. I have read quotes where both of you had said an actual pylon reunion. Uh, You know, Curtis Crow, you, Vanessa, you, Michael, couldn't couldn't really happen without Randy. He dies in 2009, a couple of days after having a heart attack uh, while driving his van. And and we hadn't established that in this interview. It's a tragic loss. And he was a truly unique voice on guitar. People had to study what the heck was this guy doing. It was amazing what he could do. I went out in the audience when I was trying an instrumental in Atlanta, and I'm standing next to these two guitar nerds that always followed him around. And one of them said to the other, he said, I can't figure it out. It doesn't look that hard. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it wasn't just hitting the strings. It was like tapping the guitar, tapping the strings, you know, um, how he used his hands. And a lot of them didn't realize he had his own tuning, an alternate tuning, that made it unique. Well, you guys weren't schooled musicians, and that, that probably contributes a lot to the uniqueness of the sound. You, you could only sound like yourself. You couldn't sound it like an imitation, because that wasn't what you were in it for, right, Michael? Well, I think that's actually the key to like what we have to offer in our story at this point, um, this many years later. 
uh, even though it sounded a little trite, even in my own ear for so many years of us going around, like acting like self-taught artists, like in, in visual art, you know, self-taught art is, is a thing that was also very popular around that time. So part of me's always thought, we like to say like, oh shucks, you know, we just don't really know what we're doing. I mean, that's why we just like happened into this, our, our own sound. But the more time that has passed and more comparisons that have been made, you know, uh, by other people, by us, I'm starting to really understand that maybe it's just that the four of us got together. It was only those four. It evolved into to a certain level to where we had competency at what we had created ourselves. But we didn't have a, a kind of competency that went beyond that. Like we couldn't just go and jam with some other band, for instance. You know, we couldn't just hop up on stage and play a cover song or something. We just weren't made that way. And, and so I do think that the band developed individually and as uh, foursome its own musical language in a way. Randy approached the guitar, you know, like a, a sculptor. And that was his major in the art school. He didn't intend to have the wrong tuning. He thought he had a proper guitar tuning. When he figured it out from somebody that was helping out or whatever at one point, like, dude, you know, your strings aren't tuned right. Well, Randy experimented briefly with putting him back to a traditional tuning and just had to reject it right away. Like, he had already invested, like, too much, you know, time and energy uh, <laughs> with the wrong tuning. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So we, we just kind of built our own language up and there really is no other way for original Pylon to exist at this point, you know, or to, or even to, to play a show. We were a live band, first and foremost, so I'm mm. grateful that we did the amount of recording that we did. Well, the new box covers uh, a tremendous amount of ground, and uh, we're glad to have it. We're glad to have you guys on the show. It's been a, a complete honor and a privilege to be talking to Michael Lukowski and Vanessa Briscoe Hay of Pylon, celebrating the history. And moving forward, that music is alive and well. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Oh, gosh, thanks, y'all. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Do you have any thoughts on Pylon? What is your favorite music from Georgia? Share it with us on Facebook, Twitter, or send a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org, and we might use it on the air. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, uh, 20th anniversary of a great album, Radiohead's Kid A, and we're going to do a classic album dissection. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find them. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne.